Please uh, turn with me in your Bibles into John chapter 1. We're continue in this series, John chapter 1, beginning at verse 19, this evening through verse 28. Hear God's word. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him then, why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Giving your own personal testimony about Jesus Christ's role in your life can be an effective part of your witnessing ministry to unsaved loved ones and neighbors. The idea of effective witnessing shouldn't be implied to mean that you have the power in and of yourselves to convince people of the truth of who Jesus is, and save them, only the Holy Spirit can convert sinners. Though in doing so, he can and he does use various methods of witnessing as long as the gospel is proclaimed. For as Romans 10 tells us, faith comes by hearing. It's interesting to note that this hearing can at times happen rather impersonally, and it's evident when we hear the testimonies of those who picked up a Bible tract off the ground or I've heard of uh, Bible tracts even being left in bathrooms that were then picked up, read, and people were saved. Uh, there's almost nothing more impersonal than that kind of a gospel testimony. At the same time, the Lord typically saves sinners in the context of relationships that Christians have, have built with unbelievers. In other words, most of the time conversions to Christ take place through Christians proclaiming the truth to people they've gotten to know, either directly or through inviting them to church. And some have referred to this personal approach as friendship evangelism. And often what is involved in these more intimate evangelistic conversations is a Christian sharing his testimony. And by testimony, I mean bearing witness to what the Lord has done in your life and bringing you to faith or in how he has worked in your life to give you joy and peace in knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior. So a testimony might be uh, testifying about your conversion experience, if that is what you have had. It might be how the Lord worked in your heart from a very early age, maybe even as far back as you can remember, to give you faith, and then you can explain what faith in Jesus means to you. Your testimony might be how the Lord clearly answered prayer, which could lead into a conversation about how the Lord hears the prayers of anyone, as long as we humbly approach him in faith. And of course, what does that mean? We can explain that. Your testimony might be how the Lord spoke to you through a passage of scripture, 
and gave you great comfort and instruction that helped you. And then you could encourage your friend to read his Bible prayerfully, asking God to help him uh, to understand and apply that word to his life. And so talking about Jesus, giving testimony to the Lord's work in everyday conversations is a part of how you can help fulfill the Great Commission. Well, John the Apostle, and I'll be referring to the Apostle or to John the Baptist in order to keep us clear who we're talking about here, but John the Apostle, back in verse 7, has introduced John the Baptist as a man sent from God as a witness to bear witness about the light. And, of course, that light is Jesus. And that same word for witness is now picked up here in verse 19 when John the Apostle says, and this is the testimony of John. To bear witness or to testify, to set forth a testimony, these are the same things. It's really the same Greek word. And so in verse 7, the Apostle John has told us that John came to testify about Jesus. And we've been told that the purpose John had in testifying about Jesus was that all, that all might believe. Now we might wonder, believe what? Well, it's implied, it's understood that John's goal in testifying about Jesus was that listeners would believe that Jesus is the light and that they would look to him for eternal life. And in verse 15, we were told something of John's testimony about Jesus' greatness, where it says there, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And now in the section beginning with verse 19, we are told the context in which he spoke these words, as well as uh, John's more of John's actual testimony. And so we're now at this point with the coming of verse 19, getting into the actual historical account of John's gospel. Now, in a very real sense, the apostle has been dealing with history all along. To go back to the very beginning of time and creation and place the person of Jesus there and point to him as the creator of all things, that's certainly historical. Um, we've also been introduced to John the Baptist as a real person in history. The word becoming flesh and dwelling among us was a real event and arguably the greatest event in history up until that point. Mention is made of Moses and the law. Again, references to real people and events in history. So John, no doubt, already has been dealing with history. And yet everything so far has been understood as belonging to what is called the prologue of John's gospel. Uh, the word prologue is just a fancy word for an introduction, which is what we have been dealing with in verses 1 through 18. And as part of that introduction, we have been introduced to important principles and main points that are going to guide our understanding of the rest of John's gospel as he gives us an account of Jesus' life and ministry, this one who, as the word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And so we've been introduced to Jesus as the eternal, pre-existent, now incarnate Son of God. We have learned that he is son in a unique way that allows him to be with the Father and at the very same time to be God, which goes along with Jesus being the life, light, and truth, which are themes that will be developed in the rest of John's gospel. Because of who Jesus is and because of this redemptive purpose of his coming, those who receive him become children of God, while those who reject him remain in darkness. And now that these 
introductory matters have been taken care of, and we understand the implications of who Jesus is as the Word, um, we know that he's no mere man, now we are ready to hear the rest of the story. It's interesting to note the place that John the Baptist has been given both in the prologue of verses 1 through 18 and here in the history which properly begins in verse 19. The Holy Spirit through the Apostle brings John to the forefront. We were introduced to John in the prologue and now with verse 19 there is this rather large section that concerns John the Baptist. And this is fitting because the Apostle's goal is to take us to the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, which you really can't talk about without talking about John the Baptist. So we notice that the Apostle John, he skips Jesus' birth, other than to tell us that the Word became flesh. And we have now fast-forwarded to the start of Jesus' ministry, which took place in the context of John the Baptist's ministry. And all the writers of the Gospels uh, all of the, the gospel writers are consistent in reporting the role of John at this early stage. And the point of including uh, John the Baptist, if I could explain it briefly, is clearly not to glorify John, but to prove that Jesus is the promised Messiah. As the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist's role was to herald him, and that was a role that John fulfilled beautifully. And it's John's testimony as a forerunner of the Lord Jesus. It's his testimony about Jesus that fills the verses before us this evening. So I've taken as the theme John the Baptist's testimony, and we will consider first who he is, that is who John is, second who Jesus is, and the call to exalt him, and thirdly we have here also warning. So we begin with who John is, and we notice that John's testimony is given in the context of answering questions. It all begins when he is approached by these priests and Levites who ask, Who are you? And this is a loaded question. This is a question that comes back with authority. This is no question born out of mere curiosity. This is an inquiry from Israel's spiritual leaders who are demanding answers. There's general agreement that the Jews who sent these priests and Levites, who are, you understand, workers in the temple, the Jews who sent these workers, these priests and Levites, belonged to the Sanhedrin, which was the highest legal and religious body of the Jews. Now later in verse 24, we are told that these priests and Levites were sent by the Pharisees. Well, some of the members of the Sanhedrin were Pharisees. And apparently Pharisees in particular had an interest in knowing who John was. So this was an official inquiry by the religious leaders of the Jews. And as we think about this, we can recognize two perspectives. On the one hand, they were doing what religious leaders are supposed to do in terms of guarding the flock from false teachers. So it's understandable that they would try to figure out who is this John? What is he about? Scripture is clear that he was having a profound influence on society, and it's part of good spiritual and religious leadership, to evaluate the popular influencers of God's people. And so, to pause for a moment, I want to speak briefly by way of application um, to say that it is the duty of your session here at Providence 
to provide counsel on who are good Bible teachers to read and to listen to. Now, there are almost too many to evaluate these days with all of the various venues of influence through books, blogs, podcasts, audio sermons, conferences, radios, etc. So it's important that we teach you the scriptures well so that you can do a good job of evaluating what you hear yourself. But it's also important that we warn you of the possibility, the very real possibility, of there being teaching out there that is unbiblical. And uh, it's our place to call you to constantly evaluate what you read and hear in the light of Scripture. And there are from time to time very influential teachers and particular teachings that we may very well respond to directly. And this is part of, as Peter explains in 1 Peter 5, 2, what it means to shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight. So there's really nothing wrong with regularly asking of various Christian teachers, who are you? Who are you? Um, And we wouldn't want to fault the Sanhedrin for asking John that question. On the other hand, the members of the Sanhedrin were not always looking out for the spiritual interests of God's people, sadly. Um, They were often motivated by a love of prestige and power that went along with exercising a certain level of control over God's people, which meant that they didn't want people doing what John the Baptist was doing, which was teaching people and providing spiritual leadership apart from their permission. So likely, uh, from that point of view, there was an edge to that question. Who are you? In other words, who, John, do you think you are? Who has given you permission to do the things that you are doing? Specifically, do you really think you have the right to call God's people who are under our spiritual leadership and under our oversight Is it really your right to call them to repentance and to baptize them? John's calling of people to repentance does seem to imply that the religious leaders are not doing their part to prepare the people spiritually if they were inclined at all to take uh, what John was doing personally. Um, From what we know of the common religious sentiments of that day, there was very much the idea circulating that the Jews, by virtue of birth, into the physical family of Abraham were God's people and presumably didn't need repentance and did not need cleansing, the kind of repentance and cleansing being pushed by John the Baptist. Still, the religious leaders weren't necessarily being nasty in their questions to John. To be fair, they genuinely may have wondered if John was the Messiah or some other legitimate spiritual leader. Nevertheless, from what we know of them, It's more likely they wanted to hear from John directly whether or not he thought he was the Messiah. And uh, they were prepared to confront him as a false Christ, depending upon his answer. Well, John apparently knew right away what they were getting at, because without further ado, he responds, I am not the Christ. And uh, the apostle says, puts it this way, John confessed and did not deny, but confessed. And that's interesting wording. It brings out that John did not hesitate to set the matter straight right off. The very same time, if you think about it, this wording implies that John could have denied the truth. He could have taken advantage of this opportunity to claim to be the Messiah, and maybe he would have even been believed. But regardless of what he might have done and the temptation involved 
In claiming such prestige to himself, he freely confessed that he was not the Christ, he was not the Messiah. Priests and Levites then move on to ask about the next possibility. What then? Are you Elijah? And he replied, I am not. And uh, this has elicited some discussion because it seems contradictory to what Jesus later says is recorded in John eleven, thirteen through 14. For there Jesus says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So Jesus himself says, John the Baptist is Elijah who is to come. Later in Matthew 17, we have the event where Jesus is transfigured on the mountain. And remember, Moses and Elijah appear with him. And the disciples ask about the scribes insisting that Elijah must first come before the Messiah can come. And Jesus explains Elijah does come and he will restore all things. In other words, they are right in thinking that Elijah was to come and restore all things prior to the Messiah's coming. That's what Malachi 4 verse 5 had prophesied. But Jesus goes on to explain, but I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So scripture is clear. John the Baptist is the fulfillment of Malachi 4.5. He is the promised Elijah to come. So then what are we to think then when Jesus himself says this, that, that John the Baptist is Elijah, and John the Baptist says he isn't? Well, I think there are two possible things going on. First of all, it's, it's possible John doesn't realize that he is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Elijah's return. Or second, he's telling them, and I think this is probably more likely the case, he's, he's simply telling them he's not the literal Elijah. And uh, this would make sense because there is extra biblical evidence that the Jews, uh, uh, the, these Jewish leaders of Jesus' day, thought that the actual prophet Elijah, who had gone up in a whirlwind into heaven, would one day come back, would appear, would, would minister on earth before the Lord's coming. And we might think that's a crazy idea, but really, if you think about it, it's not that far-fetched when we remember that Elijah did not die. Remember, he was taken up alive into heaven in that whirlwind, so it seems very possible that he could return bodily. And then also, second, a literal reading of Malachi sounds like Elijah will return bodily to earth. So if this was a common idea, it would make sense that John would want to refute the idea that he is the actual prophet Elijah come down from heaven. And so it makes sense that he would say, no, I'm not Elijah. He may have thought it through that if he is to say he is Elijah and then tries to explain not the literal Elijah, he's just going to get into this big mess. And so he just says no as the easiest and clearest way to answer their question and to refute what was a very common misunderstanding of the literal Elijah returning. So John says, no, I'm not Elijah. Next, the representatives of the Sanhedrin move on to asking John, are you the prophet? And we believe that this question gets at the hope of God's Old Testament people as found in the promise of Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 18, of the Lord raising up a prophet like Moses from among their brothers who will speak the words of the Lord. And uh, some of the Jews thought that this was a prophecy 
of the uh, of a forerunner to the Messiah, while others correctly thought that this was a prophecy of the Messiah himself. And so John is being asked if he is that promised prophet like Moses. And he responds, no. So at this point, these representatives of the Sanhedrin have heard three things that John is not, by his own admission, he's not the Christ, he's not Elijah, he's not the prophet like Moses, but this still, you can recognize, doesn't answer the question who he is. So they ask further, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And this is when John then tells them positively who he is. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And so John here is saying, I am the fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verse 3. He's saying he is the prophesied forerunner of the Messiah. And what stands out about this description of one who prepares the way of the Lord and makes straight in the desert a highway for our God is that John is is like um, an ambassador who is going ahead of his king and making sure that everything is ready so that the king is warmly welcomed, so that he's able to travel into the city of his destination without any stress, without any difficulty, without any challenge. And what is envisioned in Isaiah's prophecy by way of analogy, is a king approaching Jerusalem from the east. The terrain uh, to the east was, was rough wilderness and therefore not a pleasant and easy route to take. It would not be the route that a royal entourage would choose in approaching Jerusalem. And so this, this leveling of the, uh, of the valleys and, and, and the mountains, this is meant to picture the hard work that John the Baptist had to do in order to prepare the way for the Messiah's coming. There were roadblocks that prevented people from accepting and receiving Jesus. I'm talking about spiritual roadblocks, like a rampant misunderstanding of the gospel, which went along with wrong expectations of the work of the Messiah. Many did not understand the need for spiritual salvation from the judgment their sins deserve. They were looking for salvation from Roman oppression. In general, they were looking for salvation from the oppression of the curse of sin on creation. They wanted to enjoy the earth's wealth, and uh, that was their goal. They wanted the, the, the curse on creation to be eliminated. And because they were looking for an earthly salvation, They were looking for a political Messiah, like many Christians today who are looking for an earthly utopia that they think the right politics can give them. Explaining the the Jews' lack of concern about sin was the belief that they were right with God through their own works. They they thought that they didn't need uh, a, a savior from sin Uh, because of their works, because of their faithfulness to observe all of the religious ceremonies of the temple. So all of these spiritual valleys and these mountains needed to be leveled for the Messiah's coming. Metaphorically, John was leveling the way by preaching the need for repentance and baptizing. He was pointing people to the truth that they are not righteous before God by their own good works. All sinners then and now need to repent of sin and seek forgiveness 
through Christ and baptism was a way for people to publicly declare their known need for cleansing from sin through the coming Messiah. And so John was working to fill the sunken valleys of self-righteousness, to knock down the mountains of political aspirations so that Jesus, as the Savior of sinners, would be received. We've already touched on who John is saying Jesus is, but let's finish up with um, who John says he is. Um, talking the, the final thing about John himself. The, the final question from the priests and Levites follows John the Baptist's declaration that he is the one foretold to prepare the way for the Lord. They go on to ask, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And their question seems to get at a, at a seeming lack of credentials for John to carry out what is a religious ceremony. The word for baptism is, in, is, is the word in the Old Testament for sprinkling of blood and water. And so typically only priests would have been allowed to baptize as part of the ceremonial laws of the temple. And so it's understandable why people would question why John, who was not an official priest, would be baptizing. At the same time as the forerunner foretold by Isaiah the fact that John's baptism was received by Jesus Christ himself proves that John was called to do what he was doing. And knowing his calling by God, John, John doesn't here hesitate in admitting to, this, to these religious leaders that he baptizes. He openly says, I baptize. Now notice he says, I baptize with water. It's at this point that John goes on to explain who Jesus is. He says, I baptize with water, but... And uh, what John says about Jesus is perhaps not as direct as we might like or expect, but it's also the case that the implications of what John says are perfectly clear. First, Jesus is king. Jesus is king. John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied that his son would go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Again, this is a figure of speech that involves a king coming to his people. This means that John is preparing the way for God's anointed Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus, by clear implication, is a king coming to his people. And second, Jesus is the Savior from sin. The other Gospels explain that John was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And since this was preparation for the coming of Jesus, the idea is that um, that, that those coming for baptism were to look to Jesus as the one who would provide the actual cleansing from sin symbolized by the water baptism. This is implied in John's answer in verse 26 when he says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me. And The idea behind what John is saying is that the one who is coming is going to perform the reality of water baptism. I baptize with water, John says. My baptism is a religious ceremony that involves water as a symbol. Water baptism has never been able to actually cleanse from sin, and John knew this. John's gospel in Uh, sorry, Matthew's gospel in in chapter 3, verse 11, quotes John as saying, I baptize you with water for repentance, 
But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So the real cleansing from sin is something that only Jesus can do. Baptism with water doesn't save. Water can't wash away sins. We need the cleansing from sin that comes with the Holy Spirit, cleansing that is based in the blood of Jesus Christ, that is based in Jesus making atonement for our sins through his death on the cross. And so John is essentially saying, what I am doing is of only relative importance. It's a way to point people to the real cleansing from sin that Jesus alone can provide. And John also points out that Jesus is unexpected. He's, what I mean by that, he's not the kind of Messiah people were anticipating. He says to his interrogators who are, it's understood, going to report back to the Sanhedrin, but among you stands one you do not know. At this point in history, Jesus has already come on the scene. John has already baptized him. And yet, they have ignored the real Messiah in order to confront John, who they think may be a false Messiah. While John was doing the work of preparing the way for Christ's coming, there were those who were not listening, who were not responding to John's call to repentance. There remained those, especially among the religious establishment, who were trusting in their own good works, who were trusting in their religiousness to make them right with God. And they didn't want the Lord's forgiveness because they were sure they didn't need it. They were interested in a political deliverer from the oppression of Rome. They were not interested in a man uh, who, to all earthly appearances, was a nobody. Nevertheless, Jesus is, by John's testimony, worthy of their trust and worship. For John says of Jesus, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now, in that culture, a servant would be expected to take off his master's sandals in order to wash his feet. And in the case of a student with his teacher, that student would be expected to do for his teacher whatever a slave might do, except, there was an exception, uh, a student was not required to take off his teacher's shoes. That was, that was too lowly. That was a level of humility that was not expected of a servant. Expected of a, uh, sorry, of a student, but it, it, was, it was expected of a servant, but not of a student. And this gives us perspective on what John is saying. He is saying that he is not worthy to be even the lowest servant of Jesus. He, he, Jesus is so far above John, and we need to recognize so above us, glory, and position so worthy of our adoration and worship and trust and love that to untie the sandal of the Lord Jesus is above us. We're not worthy. Jesus was John's teacher. Normally, John would not be expected to do something as lowly as untie Jesus' sandal. And John's saying, I'd be willing to do that, but actually, I'm too lowly to do that. And this makes sense when we think about who Jesus really is. A man, but, but so much more. Ultimately, God himself, the creator, the word who is with God and who is God, God's son who has become flesh and dwelt among us. How do we dare approach this one who is God? What would give us the right to think that we could approach him to untie his sandal? What an amazing and distressing reality that people don't realize who Jesus is. 
They do not honor his majesty. John feels like it's above him to untie Jesus' sandal, while the religious leaders have no regard for Jesus at all. And that contrast in how people view Jesus as either everything or nothing continues to this day. There's a great warning here regarding the need to recognize Jesus' greatness as well as our own smallness. And basically, the warning is that you and I need to be humble. And John the Baptist is an example of how the spirit of humility should pervade our lives. He so easily could have claimed to be what he is not. He could have claimed to be the Messiah. He could have claimed to be Elijah. He could have claimed to be that promised prophet like Moses. He could have tricked many people into giving him recognition and power and probably even money. He could have exchanged his animal skins and diet of locusts and honey for the fanciest clothing and delicacies of the world. But he knew his place and he knew his Savior. And his goal was not to exalt self, but to exalt Christ. The difference between John and the religious leaders who were interrogating him was one of humility. John was preparing people for Christ. He was exalting Christ. He was calling people to repentance before Christ. And repentance requires humility. And this is because of what repentance is. Repentance is going to God in prayer and it's admitting that you are a sinner and you cannot save yourself. That takes humility. Repentance means sorrowing over your sin as an affront against God. And that takes the humility of admitting that God deserves your loyalty. He deserves your dedication and your obedience, but you have failed. Repentance means admitting that you deserve judgment for your sin. And that requires the humility of admitting that you cannot meet God's holy standard. It's understandable on the face of it why we as sinners might not want to humble ourselves like this. First of all, it's contrary to our fallen nature to humble ourselves. Our goal as sinners, from the, the, from the perspective of how we naturally are fallen in sin, is to find every possible way of exalting ourselves, finding every possible way of making us feel good about ourselves. It, it's counterintuitive to think that humbling ourselves could ever be a good thing. And second, we are inclined to think that by approaching a holy God with all of our sinful ugliness is just going to bring down his wrath upon us in a hurry. And so our natural inclination is to hide our sin. Don't admit anything. Don't come clean. We feel like that's the way of self-preservation, which is why God in his word constantly tells us in various ways, good things will happen in the way of repentance. John preached repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The gospel is that when we confess our sins, when we repent of our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins. Humility before God is the way of blessing and the way of life. So let's make sure that we are not those who do not know Jesus. J.C. Ryle asks, are we aware that Jesus is going to and fro in our land, inviting souls to join him and to be his disciples? Do we know that the time is short and that the door of mercy will soon be closed forevermore? Do we know that Christ rejected will soon be Christ withdrawn? End quote. 
Christ stands among us. He is with us in the reading, studying, and preaching of the word. He is with us in our church services and in our Christian homes as we hear of him. But do you know him? Don't be like the religious leaders of John's day who never received or believed in him, though he was right there. Christ is near. So many sleep. So many ignore him. So many know him not. And so I would implore you, wake up. Wake up out of your spiritual slumber and receive this one who as God, yes, he may seem very intimidating because he is God. He is the one who was with God and who is God, who is so beyond you in greatness. John was right. We are not worthy to even untie his sandal. That's intimidating. And yet he welcomes you to seek him for the forgiveness of your sins. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for John's testimony. We thank you that he was humble and willing to acknowledge his place in redemptive history as the forerunner of Jesus, pointing people to him, pointing uh, people to the need to repent of sins and find that forgiveness in Christ. And uh, Lord, we pray that we each one would know Christ as our Savior, that, Father, you would do a mighty work in our hearts, preparing us to receive and to know Christ. Um, Lord, we pray that we would not be those among whom Christ stands, but we don't know him. We pray that we might know what it is to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, to know the baptism that Christ has earned for his people through his death on the cross. So, Father, give us a great and growing love for Christ, a willingness to humble ourselves. And, uh, and Father, we, we thank you for the exaltation that is actually promised us in the way of trusting in Christ, that we are co-heirs with Christ, that we have eternal life with him. Father, we thank you for these things. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.